0: This episode of Zero to Travels brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at nissanusa.com. Getting off
1: that hamster wheel of life, looking around, people suddenly realize: I don't know, maybe I've been working a job for the last 15 years that doesn't fulfill me, that I'm not happy with, or my partner's not doing it for me. They, you know, you've never stopped and look around and got off, and, and the, you know, that that Hamps will. and we've had people leave their partners and we've had people leave their jobs well we've had obese people who are now marathon runners we've had big quite seismic changes i don't position it as a transformational travel experience and i don't really want to attract people who are maybe in the midst of a midlife crisis <laughs> too much but uh, yeah it, it is beneficial for people partly through the adversity and partly just for slowing down i think
0: That is a clip from today's guest, Tom Williams, talking about the inadvertent transformative nature of the trips he runs for his company, Desert Island Survival, where he can take you to a deserted island, experts teach you survival skills, then... They leave you stranded there to survive for three days. You can check it out at DesertIslandSurvival.com as an accompany to this interview if you want to read up on what he does. And today you'll hear Tom discuss some of his own transformative travel experiences, how he went from working as an international wealth manager to taking people to desert islands to survive how moving to Honduras for seven months helped him overcome childhood bullies and other challenges back home in England the other huge travel decision he made that created radical change in his life and how it still impacts him today why your perception of destinations changes so much over time some of his top lessons for running a business remotely how he tested his idea for this company before putting a lot of money into it and what lessons you can take from that to do the same, how he finds deserted islands in the modern world and much more. Plus, I'm going to give a shout out to a windshield time listener who has fulfilled the travel dream she's been working towards for seven years. got to give her some props here and why this Grammy award-winning multimillionaire artist who I love makes a strong case for making your life and work more complicated. All of that and much more is happening right now in today's show. So buckle up, strap in. Thanks for being here. And welcome to the Zero to Travel Podcast, my friend.
1: You're listening to the Zero to Travel Podcast, where we explore exciting travel based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams.
0: Now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey, what's up? It's Jason here with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks for hanging out here today, letting me bring a little travel into your ears. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. Now... Relax, grab a beverage, and just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip. Uh, Okay, that's a very old school reference. The theme song to Gilligan's Island where a bunch of people get shipwrecked and stranded on a desert island, I guess for three years, because that's how long the show was on the air. And I had a funny fact to share. Have you heard of this show? I mean, I I know this was even before my time, and I ain't no spring chicken, but uh, this was a a pretty kind of quirky, funny show. Did you know Gilligan, The, the goofball on the show, had a first name? Gilligan's first name is Willie, according to the internet. Willie Gilligan. (laughs) Anyway, there's a fun fact to kick this show off. And on a serious note, a lot coming out of this conversation with Tom about what led him to begin leading trips to deserted islands, teaching people survival skills, and then leaving them there to survive. And the journey that his life took to kind of get to this point and why this is resonating so much right now with people in this modern age, wanting to kind of get back to those survival basics. This was really intriguing to me. And you heard, if you listened to the show regularly last week, uh, we had a guest on who was sharing his experience going on one of these trips. And as soon as I heard that and kind of discovered what Tom did, I thought, I got to have him on the show. I want to find out how and why This guy started a company like this, why it's resonating, and uh, this idea of transformative travel, although that was not his intention with this, was to create some kind of transformation in people. Going through an experience like this is doing that. Isn't that what travel kind of does to us inadvertently, right? It's like almost like a byproduct of travel. We can't help but be changed. And in this interview, Tom shares a couple personal travel experiences that really changed him, Of course, as you go about listening to this, I encourage you to reflect on some of your past travels and how they may have transformed you and how they may continue to impact you today. And if you want to use that as a prompt to get in touch, please reach out if you're a listener to the show and you haven't said hi yet. Drop me a line. Jason at travel.com is my email. Read all those emails from listeners or better yet, drop me a voicemail. In the voicemail box that I have set up in each and every show notes, you can just click on a link and leave a voicemail. Easy peasy. Of course, sign up at zerototravel.com if you want to hop on the newsletter list and stay in touch off the podcast. Now, before we dive in to the interview segment, I do want to give a shout out to somebody in this listening community. The story inspired me. They've been working for seven years towards a travel goal. And speaking of the transformative nature of travel... This reminded me of something that I think is important for all of us travelers to remember when we're not traveling, when we're perhaps working towards a travel goal. Now, here's that listener voicemail.
2: Hey, Jason, it's Steph here. I am a longtime loyal fan follower and subscriber of the podcast. I did the math the other day and I've been listening to your podcast since 2015, which is just crazy. And I listened to it like religiously on my drive every day to and from my old corporate job and then to and from college. And it just really shaped the way I viewed the world and really Helped ignite the fire in my soul for my travel dreams. So I wanted to come in here and give you the biggest thank you ever and give you the exciting news. My partner and I are tuning in right now from Bangkok, Thailand. We have finally, after over seven years of dreaming and planning about this, we've embarked on our own nomadic journey. We're traveling all around Asia right now and then get head over to Europe next year. But we wanted to say thank you. I don't know if this would be possible if it wasn't for your podcast because, I mean, you've just been such a source of inspiration for this trip. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Stefan. Huge congratulations. I love what you said about igniting the fire. In your soul. I love that phrase, ignite the fire in my soul. And seven years of planning is no small thing. And this is what stuck out and reminded me that's transformative as well. That time before you travel, where you're working towards a goal, it really is a trip before the trip, and I need to remind myself of this sometimes as I work towards the next things, as we all do in life, right? We're kind of got our next thing coming up, and sometimes it's easy to just focus on the destination and see, oh, once I get there, things are going to be so great, but we have to remember to take the lessons from the the lead-up to it, which isn't just a lead-up to the thing. It's our life, right? It's just a reminder for me, and I wanted to share some thoughts around that. For you and also just quickly acknowledge what Steph and Dalt, her partner, have accomplished working towards this travel goal and now living that nomadic lifestyle they've been working towards. So congrats to them. By the way, they just launched a podcast called Life with Steph and Dalt. If you want to check that out, happy to just give them a quick uh, plug and support another podcaster because that's a, a lot of work to get a podcast out there. So congrats to them on that as well. Now, let's get in to the interview segment of today's show. And you heard what's coming. I don't need to to preface it anymore. I really loved this conversation with Tom Williams. And I do encourage you to check out desertislandsurvival.com if you want to see what he's up to there. I'm on the email list over there. And I, I really like this idea. It's such a unique travel experience. And if you ever wanted to be a castaway on a desert island, I mean, who hasn't? then you can check them out and stick around on the back end. Of course, I'll leave you with a quote and I do want to share a lesson. I just pulled out from a Grammy winning multimillionaire artist who I really love, who makes a strong case for um, making things more complicated than they need to be. Why would you do that? Maybe that'll be part of the challenge I leave you with today. The listener challenge. There's a little hint. I'll get into that on the back end. Stick around for some commentary on the interview as well. And I hope to see you there. Enjoy this chat. And I'll see you on the other side, my friend. What trip are you recently back from?
1: Just got back from Panama.
0: Panama. Nice. Yeah. A Central American country I haven't been to. Give me your sort of your impressions of Panama as a, as a place to, to travel, to visit.
1: It's beautiful wilderness, um, lovely, uh, tropical jungle. And obviously being on the, being that isthmus, that thin bit of land, you've got Pacific and Caribbean on both sides. So you've got that variety, but Panama city is not much to look at. It's, uh, it's kind of, it's got an, a kind of gritty, um, it's not my first choice of country in, in Central America but um but we look for unique situations in uh for specific countries to have everything we need for our islands and Panama has it in spades over on the Pacific coast.
0: Yeah, cool. Should really quickly welcome you to the show. I'm with Tom Williams from desertislandsurvival.com. We're going to talk all about survival and and how you got into this and I'm I'm so excited I've been waiting for this one because I'm just excited to hear your your story and how this this all started for you where are you right now are you back home or where is home by the way well
1: home is we've been very much nomadic as a family um i'm in lisbon i just moved to lisbon eight days ago and it's been frantic because the whole world seems to be moving here um and so it's it's like it's a bum fight to get any accommodation um and so, yeah, we just got a confirmation on an apartment. We're moving in on Thursday. I'm bouncing around the Airbnbs with my family right now. But no, we I spent the last 10 years in Chile, and then I've been on the road living in Thailand, in Mexico, in uh, Spain, and, and now Portugal. But Portugal is forever home, or well, at least for the next, like, 5, 10 years. We'll see.
0: Okay, yeah. Why did you choose Portugal to be home? Um,
1: so we wanted to be back in Europe. We're ready for a bit of that European stability. I've got a five-year-old son, and we want him to be close to his grandparents. We want good schools and all that stuff. But we couldn't possibly live in England. The weather is just untenable. And, um, and we are – there's a lot of – like, the people here are lovely. Like, Lisbon, it's this functional city, but it feels like a thousand villages stitched together. It's this default kind of kindness – um it doesn't feel too um it has boutique stores rather than chain stores it just feels still feels cool um and uh yeah and kind like it's a kind city and so yeah and there's there's a few tax benefits for living in Portugal that have just come about as well um it's pretty liberal leaning it's got beautiful wilderness um great ki- I like kite surfing it's got good kite surfing yeah it just seems to tick a lot of boxes I'm eight days into living here but so far loving it
0: Awesome. That's a good, pretty good coffee too. I'd say if you're a coffee drinker, well, maybe you're more tea, you know, the, um, the English, I've got my tea the,
1: right here, they but like I like am... their
0: tea. I know you like your tea. I might have to harass you a bit more about Portugal because I, I have two kids and I'm thinking, I was thinking the other day, maybe I'll take my son down to uh, the coast of Portugal for a little scouting trip as a potential, you know, cause we live in Norway. So need kind of a place to get away from the cold dark long winter as you know very 100%. well coming from england right
1: <laughs> 100%. well me casper is too casper mate i've just we've just got a nice big spare bedroom so uh, uh and how are your kids
0: well i have a six-year-old daughter and my son will turn four pretty soon perfect so one so
1: either the side of of my son edward who's five so yeah come yeah, on so man, you have come one and
0: stay. one child
1: yeah, one and two. Cool. Yeah,
0: He's, um, we're always looking for additional playmates. So, and I was—I I went so far as to sort of like cross-reference international school locations with surfing places that had a good beginner break because I'm—I'm um, crap when it comes to surfing, but I like to get out and do it. So uh, I don't know. We'll see. That—that's another tangent. I did want to talk a bit about your growing up. Do you have any siblings yourself?
1: No, I'm an only child. Hopefully yeah. not a classic only child, but I am.
0: And you grew up in England. Yeah. Was it a small village type place or a city? Where did you... It was an island,
1: but it's an island that you wouldn't even know it was an island. Okay. It's called Portsmouth, and it's got a causeway that attaches it. But it's, uh, it's a very densely populated island on the on the south coast of England, overlooking the Isle of Wight. It's um, There's worse places to grow up. There's better places to grow up. Um, but yeah, it was tumultuous. In what say. way? I, uh, I don't know. I... I feel like I'm somehow, I'm so fortunate to be where I am today. There are so many crossroads in life. I uh, you know, I was the fattest kid in my school. I came bottom of the year of my school. It was not looking good. My nickname was Bum. And somehow I've navigated out of this path of, of being <laughs> this guy in Portsmouth to, um, well, I've, yeah, living somewhat a dreamy life, um, taking people to desert islands. So, uh, yeah, it's still pinching myself, really. That really?
0: Yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about that, if you don't mind you know especially at those ages when you get sort of labeled as something or you get put into a box in some way and you don't have the mature brain to kind of understand that that's just something that externally people are putting on you and then it's not really your own definition of yourself right which is what matters most but how do you how did you kind of break out of that in some yeah, ways
1: it's literally like i prepped you with that you took the words out of my life it's all about labels um, words out of my mouth, and um, so when I I, I was always I had these labels on me. I was I was you know thick fat. What a stupid bummer! And and then I went and mapped coral reefs in Honduras randomly when I was 20 years old. I managed to get this to count it as a year of university. I, I guess I was coming out of this uh, <laughs> fairly negative period of life, maybe as it was. But once I finally left, you know. The surroundings of my of my of my peer groups and stuff, who are still my best, some of my best friends today, um, and went and, and lived in Honduras, and suddenly became um, the guy within this coral mapping community who had been there the longest, who uh, people looked up to, who um, you know had to learn every single species of fish, coral, invertebrate within the Caribbean Sea, and I was a dive master and all this stuff, and that finally I was treated differently, and I came back suddenly with my head held higher and realized, wait a minute. I I was just labeled these things I'm not necessarily these things and so like if my son was in that kind of position I feel I think like a radical tangent moving to somewhere completely different where you don't have those labels around you where you don't have that kind of that box surrounding you can be really beneficial and really really um you to shake them off and I think you know wilderness therapy is used in that way with um like teenage children from inner cities um problem backgrounds um some of my my instructors who run our classes they also do wilderness therapy with teenagers and they yeah they have amazing success uh, by taking people out of that environment and just showing them kindness showing them uh, different values and stuff so yeah
0: yeah. one of the other many benefits of travel i guess you could say right it's it's almost tragic that it needs to be so extreme, right? Like you need to actually fly away from where you live and everybody, you know, just not you, but I mean, just in general, like I I understand that, that whole situation where like, sometimes it just takes getting around something new and a a new place to just kind of reinvent some part of it. Is it a really a reinvention if it's already there? You know, it's just like you're, you're in a situation where people are just, it's kind of tough.
1: It's like repotting a plant
0: <laughs> right <laughs> so that really opened things up for you, and how long were you in Honduras? How long did you live live there
1: uh, for seven months um, I, I scraped my way to university and I was staying with um, this guy called Simon who said, I'm going to Fiji to map coral. And I was like, that sounds incredible. I'm, I'm coming too. And he's like, no, mate, you're not coming to Fiji as well. This is my thing. I was like, fair enough. He's like, but this company called Coral K Conservation, I don't know if they're still going, they probably are. They had programs in the Philippines and in Honduras. And so I thought, like, right, I'll do the Honduras one. And um, and so, yeah, so I went into that and it counted as a year of university, college, from kind of scraping past in year one and year two with like, Base level pass marks are forty percent, forty one percent. My final year, which luckily counted for seventy five percent of my whole, whole degree, um, I was writing about something I was newly passionate about the you know the effects of scuba tourism on coral and um, and I was so lit up by what I was doing that I found passion in learning for the first time as well. So that was a big part of it, and I got like eighty six percent in my final year. So from getting like bottom marks for fifteen years of education, I finally got like <laughs> a yeah really good. Um, qualification at that last year and ended up with a 2-1. So yeah, it was really cool that it counted as a year of university.
0: Yeah. That's one of the reasons I feel that the the education system is outdated, right? Like sometimes it's just a matter of giving people an opportunity to just find out what lights them up. A hundred percent.
1: You know, the, the classic adage of of judging a fish by how well it climbs a tree. Um, you know, I came bottom of my school. I've since learned I'm not complete idiot. And and you know we don't measure metrics like whatever it may be, like emotional intelligence or your social skills or things like that. We just literally, uh, traditionally, judge how well you can retain information, regurgitate it, and forget it the next day. And that's that's a ridiculous way of learning, and it is changing. But you know that's how it traditionally has been for so long. And also this kind of conformist side of it, of like you will wear this outfit and you will um, adhere to this bell when it goes off, and kind of almost like this Victorian pre-industrial or the industrial time for getting us used to going to the factory and to clocking in and clocking out and, and obedience and such. And so, yeah, it's changing, but definitely like education is, uh, yeah, it was broken for a long time and still probably is in many ways. Yeah.
0: How does your experience with all this growing up impact your parenting now?
1: Uh, I mean, I'm thinking I'm really lucky that, well, my son I think he seems to be the kind of kid who's going to get on very well in the traditional education system as it is. I don't know. We, I guess, we just I give him a lot more. If I, I don't expect him to necessarily go to university, I don't. Ex- I want him to. I want to certainly promote entrepreneurialism within him. I want him to look at like starting businesses, maybe from like age. I don't know, 12, 14, and start thinking about these things. When he turns sixteen, he has to survive on a desert island for one week with just a machete. By the way. he has that rite of passage and that that takes me on to another thing like you see within tribes um most tribes have some kind of rite of passage for when you know you become a man you grow up be it like wrestling in mongolia or running on the back of cattle in ethiopia or wearing a woven glove and getting stung by bullet ants in um in 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 amazon tribes but like we see so much problem like we've got so much energy in these teenage years and it kind of gets misspent and misdirected and uh, i think we need something like we need we're, we're kind of almost ready for battle we're so charged and uh, and it kind of that energy gets pushed in the wrong direction so like more coming of age in the western world stuff would be would be cool in my opinion
0: yeah i feel like <laughs> what you're describing is really the crossroads of what you do right it's sort of like this primal thing i don't know with (laughs) modern day right and and there is like this well i mean the company's been wildly popular it seems you already have their next couple years filled out on the trips. we're gonna we're gonna get into that but and i want to get pick your brain on just some like survival tips and and things like that but this is a in demand obviously right so there still is this uh it's i don't think it's just you you have to tell me because they're your clients, but I I my hunch is that it's not just that uh, people want to learn survival skills because they think it's an important thing to know in life. It's more about the emotional kind of let's let's get back to sort of these basic some of the primal needs or desires and get away from some of the stuff that that's a very unnatural fit that's only come about over the last you could say decade even in some. Cases, you know, with smartphones and everything. Yeah, is that fair to say?
1: Completely. It's it's hard to kind of put a finger on the one thing that people are looking for. Um, I mean, I, I to kind of really stereotype my customer, there, you know, maybe it's someone in their thirties who's working. Um, about seventy percent tend to be male, but they're working a job that they don't particularly feel fulfilled by. They feel like something's missing. They just want to feel alive. They want more adventure. They want to kind of disconnect, and so. Um, <sighs> And this is just like one kind of avenue of, of where people may come from, but uh they you know they want to they want to do something completely different that allows them to completely step off the hamster wheel of life and you know we're so hyper connected we're so uh stimulated um and we're so disconnected from nature, which has been you know it's hardwired into us really we we always lived as tribes um up until the dawn of agriculture ten thousand years ago you know we always uh, lived immersed in nature and this is our hard wiring this is our programming we haven't shaken that programming off at all yet you know we're still so young <laughs> as a species and so yeah when we go out and we spend time in nature and when we live as a tribe um and these in these communities we just feel r- it feels so right we feel lit up we feel uh, kind of complete and uh even though like our trips have you know a bit of adversity and challenge within them um people feel like they've truly had a holiday, a vacation. They've really actually managed to unwind and relax. And I do as well. Like I've just got back from free trips back to back in Panama. And I can already feel like I'm tightening up again, like just by being in the city. Um, on the island I'm able to, I don't know, I can slip into a nap. I can I can manage to read my book without thinking about something else uh, for an hour t- towards the towards the end of the trip when the customers are in their survival phase that is. Um, but um yeah it's it's nourishing. It's really nourishing that that immersion in nature and living living as a community with people
0: we'll be back right after this this episode is brought to you by u.s bank recently i went out for tacos and it wasn't even friday yes we have taco friday in norway And enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at nissanusa.com. Let's get back to the show. You were working as an international wealth manager for 10 years. (laughs) If I just grab a snippet of of something you said, I provide my clients (laughs) with bespoke financial solutions and investment portfolios to suit their personal needs and objectives. How do you go from that (laughs) to taking people to desert islands? Because that seems on the surface like a pretty big gap to bridge. How did that happen? 100%. 100%.
1: So mm-hmm. I okay, so let's jump back a little bit. So okay, did the Honduras thing. Then I, I went and worked as a, a um, dive master for a bit, a snowboard instructor for a bit. And then the expectations of my of my parents were get a proper job, you know, get that traditional job. So I got a job selling software for an American software company. And I got depressed. I remember driving on the road thinking I could just crash my car into the central reservation and be done with it, you know, or not be done with it, but have, get, you know, get a nice three week break in hospital or something like that. I was like, wait a minute, this is a suicidal tendency. This is not, you're not comfortable in this uh, position. So my random kick out from that was I was speaking to my mate Paul in the pub and and he was like, I'm walking to the North Pole. And I said, all right. Can I come? And he's like, "Yeah, man, let's, let's walk to the North Pole." So I ended up signing up to the walks of the North Pole. In uh, that was in 2008. We trained for two years, and in 2010, I walked to the North Pole, and that was my way of being like, "I'm not going to be labelled as a software salesman in in London." Um, and did that, and we won won the race, and that's a whole other other story. Um, but then I well, what's the story?
0: And, Tell us a little the, bit of the oh, story. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh it's hard what's it to like to walk to the, the
0: th- north pole i mean come on
1: it's the highest highs and the lowest lows like it's it's like being a child in the way that like everything is either amazing or terrible your emotions are so strained um we were it didn't get dark because it was spring so the sun would just lap around the sky and you would get like a six hour sunset oh. so walk into which was cool but it meant we didn't have to work on a 24-hour clock so we'd work on like a 32-hour mm-hmm. clock to walk by and um, we'd walk for two hours, stop for five minutes, two hours, five minutes, two hours, five minutes. And then we would set up our camp, um, sleep for four hours and repeat. And we conditioned ourselves with our trainer to only, only, you know, the mind always gives up before the body. Uh, we always, if you're doing an exercise, you go, oh, this hurts, I can't do it. But if you're hanging from a tree and a certain death awaited, if you let go of that tree, you know, you would hold on until your last fingers slipped and you fell. And that's how we kind of started to to approach everything and to the point where we actually fell asleep walking. Um, I, I did twice. Just fell into the snow. Like we got to that point where, actually, the body, the body kind of gives up. Um, and so, yeah, it was. It, what I guess that did for me was, well, one, it gave me a new label. I was like, right, I am worthy of setting up a survival business because I've walked to the North Pole. But that's just mindset, you know. It's, it's just what I told myself. But it's not the case. Um, and it gave me an, an ability to, in, to deal with adversity. Like I think when you Um, leave your comfort zone so far out and then come back in and then you oscillate within this kind of more easy area everything else feels kind of uh attainable and easy enough to easier to deal with to an extent um and so yeah we 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 ended up walking the last 50 hours without sleeping we won the race by two and a half days and we missed the world record by two hours um but it was uh yeah it was a it was a cool experience it was Getting to the start line was a hard bit. Like two years of training, fundraising, was working this job, and the actual race almost felt like you know the cherry on top of the experience. But uh, in a way, <laughs> so so I did that, and then um, and then I in 2010 after walking to the North Pole, I moved to Chile because my wife got a job there with Diageo, the, the booze company, and then I managed to a whole other story. But I managed to black myself into a super yacht. I saw in Panama and took a photo of and I worked on a soup yacht for, for three months. And then um and so I had this like real like vintage year in 2010 where I did all those things. And then I ran out of money and lived in Chile and there's not and I didn't speak Spanish. And so there's this kind of group of expats who are doing this finance stuff. And I was like, okay, well, I don't need to speak Spanish and I can do this and they're offering me a job, I'll do it. And so I just fell into this finance job that I just was not lit up by, but it was 100% commissioned. So I could just, I could have a sliding scale between time and money. And for me, time is more valuable than money. And it allowed me to pursue other things at the same time. So I was, it gave me a kind of safety net whilst building Desert Island Survival. It took way too long, but it allowed me, you know, I don't think many people are courageous enough to just jump into setting up a business without having some kind of financial safety net. And it allowed me to kind of have the two concurrently whilst I didn't know that desert island survival would work
0: out. <laughs> I can't. So, uh, yeah. Wow. So in hindsight, I, I think the two, th- those two things stick out. I mean, the, you mentioned the Honduras trip and then the, the polar expedition was really kind of a one decision that was the domino. Maybe you could call it the first domino or a bit of a, a one decision inflection point where there was radical sort of change afterwards in many ways. The desert island survival idea, I mean, you had experience walking the North Pole, which is a a freezing cold climate, surviving there. But when did the idea for the desert island survival come up? Because at some point when you were doing this commission-based job, you had to kind of settle on an idea to pursue, right? Yeah. So what was the genesis of that?
1: Yeah, it's, you know, that childhood dream of always being marooned on a desert island. Um, was was certainly part of it. Uh, some people have, um, but also you know with the with the coral side of things, I've always been looking to go diving in remote places, and I've I'm always looking to, like over the edge of the map, like where is untouched by humanity, and where can I see? I've always had, had that fantasy of of jungle straight down to beaches that are un, untouched, and and seeing that, and um, and I, I I I so I just looked online to see what was was available to to go and do these survival experiences. I found a couple. Of companies and and I went on their trips and I was like you know this is this is all right but it, it falls a little short of my expectations. Um, one of the, one was a um, a little bit uh, militant um, and kind of lacked the soft skills. He was ex ex army um, and it didn't have much of the purest bushcraft aspects that I wanted. Um, and then the other one wasn't actually a remote island; it was a populated island in the Virgin Islands. So I want to be disconnected and I want to be learning primitive skills by from from like you know the best bushcraft people out there. And so I kind of blended those two things into a concept that I thought would be would be cool uh, myself.
0: And when did that officially start? When would you did you run your first?
1: So I set up the company in 2016 and then early 2017 I actually went to recce the islands that I found, first island I found in Panama with the guy I walked to the North Pole with. I was meant to go with the Dutch guy, but he broke his leg too much before. And my mate Rupert, who I did the North Pole with stepped in and we, we, we stayed out on the Island. Um, and then three months after that, I put a note out on my Facebook saying, I'm setting up this company who wants to come on the first trip and give me feedback. We'll just do this at cost price. And so i got four friends and then four friends of friends, which kind of worked out well because I'd never met these guys. So we didn't have that, that kind of relationship there. Um, and, and they were just so lit up. They were like, this is awesome. You've got something here, man. This is really, really cool. And we we thrashed out like how we could improve it, refine it. And then I was lucky enough to do this trip in the Virgin Islands I was mentioning with this guy called Tom McElroy, who is literally one of the best bushcraft people in the world. He So when you watch Bear Grylls or Ed Stafford, he's one of the guys behind the camera handing the right wood for Bear Grylls to rub together. He's like bushcraft advisor. Um, you can watch his stuff on YouTube. He's, he's immense, um, and so I, I was like, "Hey Tom, would you be interested in, in running these trips with me?" Because bushcraft is one of these things. Like, it's a rule of ten thousand hours plus. You know, you can't just fake it. <laughs> I, you know, I can, I can, I know about marine ecology and stuff like this. But hey, I'm not. Uh, I was not a bushcraft guy. I only started bushcraft seven years ago, and I'm still what six thousand hours into my journey. Whereas Tom and my other instructor Lucas Miller who you may know from season 1 of Alone if you've ever watched that show um he they, they you know they're like 20 30 40 50,000 hours into their bushcraft journey there and maybe people can't notice that unless they're a connoisseur like there's a difference between a, a nice bottle of wine and a vintage bottle of wine But for anyone who knows bushcraft you can see this very stark difference of how I do a hand drill fire and how these guys do a hand drill fire and um and I'm still yeah I'm still absolutely learning from them but Spending time on islands with these, I mean, masters of bushcraft has been incredible for me. Um, and I'm ranting a little bit, but the thing that I feel is what sets our trips apart and what makes them special is like the non-negotiables for me of of the trip is that the island has to be perfect and I have a whole checklist of what makes an island perfect that maybe we can go into. It has to be beautiful and safe and and, and such. But also the instructors have to be Really, really talented at bushcraft, but also emotionally intelligent enough to be able to read a group and to make it a fun experience. Um, And so when you combine just these beautiful environments with really inspiring people, like that, that's the cake. And everything else that we do is kind of just the the icing and the cherry and the fudge on top. But if you just, those two elements done really, really well, um, I think is what makes our trips really special and like why people say it's the best holiday of their lives.
0: Mm. I, I think you shared a couple pretty powerful business lessons as well for the aspiring nomads or business owners out there. How you started it was just, hey, let me put this out here and get some friends and friends of friends. And if there's enough people interested, we'll go on this thing and see how they like it. And like you said, just do it at cost, which was uh really sounds to me like the perfect way to have your sort of minimum viable product. <laughs> When it comes to this business, I think it's really easy to kind of get caught up in, oh, I want to, you know, I'm going to set up the website, and then I have to, you know, market it and all all this stuff. It's like, no, maybe you just kind of find the easiest, most lowest, or lowest barrier of way to kind of test an idea, and then bringing in some experts that can help you out for the things you don't know. Right, when you're actually ready to do it, and those two pieces you're kind of off and running and obviously a lot else involved in terms of the logistics and things like that. But just from the core sort of, Hey, how do I start something really cool that I'm passionate about? I think those were a couple of great lessons in there that you shared. I mean,
1: thank you. And I, I, I think that, yeah, that I, we never really had to make too much of an outlay uh, financially to set this up. Like it was you know, a few, few thousand dollars here or there, Um, And then never really had too much fixed outgoings as well. So when COVID came around and we had to um, basically mothball for for two years, I mean, we ended up like we went really hard on working on our CRM system and redoing the back end piece. But, um, you know, we had no, I guess, little financial exposure. So we could quite literally survive as a survival company, which is important. And I've never tried to grow quickly. And we're still, you know, we're full, but I'm still, I'm so picky about islands that I'm I'm not going to, Uh, lower the bar and work with islands that don't meet my criteria I'd rather just us you know it's this isn't about making lots of money this is about pursuing a passion and and providing something really nourishing and beautiful for people but um, yeah I think growing slowly and organically you know it's like a hardwood tree that (laughs) that, that's slower slow and steady kind of winning the race and, and not trying to to rush it and um, enforce it i think um yeah yeah that organic growth works
0: yeah and then of course see, it, in some ways it's it almost increases the demand right it's like well there's only there's only so much
1: yeah i'm hoping actually like <laughs> that we're gonna well we kind of we just we just sold out and now we're moving to more of a waiting list model um so rather than having to be heavily like remarketing and stuff we can now just not really market too much and just have you know have that waiting list and as soon as dates come available it's like go and uh, and then maybe we'll even get to a kind of um uh questionnaire of like you know we've got 120 places a year tell us why you should be marooned on a desert island company <laughs> it'd be nice to to flip it around like that if we yeah if we can
0: full transparency i just signed up for the waiting list tom <laughs> <laughs> so <with> <laughs> this
1: this week we go out on the third biggest youtube channel travel youtube channel out there called cara and nate
0: um yes they've been they, on the show no way yeah Oh, my God,
1: I can't believe I didn't know that. I'd love to – I'm going to go back and listen to that, like, after this. Um, They're lovely, lovely guys, and I'm not just blowing blowing smoke up (laughs) up them. But they, yeah, really genuinely warm, kind people and no ego despite their huge success. And, um, yeah, they just crushed it on the island. They were amazing, really purist. Um, And so, yeah, they got 3 million subscribers and uh, excited to see how much this blows up. Just their Instagram post about us sold us out, so (laughs) –
0: yeah, it's, it's it'll that'll be great for you guys. Just keep me at the top of that list, you know. I know you can shuffle it around in the back end there. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> Let's do it, man. Let's do it. <laughs> Why is learning survival skills like this important for the average person? Is it important?
1: You know, I don't think necessarily the learning primitive survival skills is you know, it's certainly not something we're going to necessarily use in anchor. but I think what I like is the appreciation for kind of layer zero of technology and going back to level one of Maslow's hierarchy. You know, the, if you've ever heard the, the blog, the Wait But Why, that guy says that no one, um, no, no one person knows how to build a pencil and like everything, you know, you can't, no one knows how to refine the graphite or to make the wood or the paint or the rubber individually, but we're the sum of all of our moving parts. And you get this huge appreciation for, like, I don't know, like a hamburger. Like, if you had to make a hamburger from scratch on a desert island, it would, you know, it probably take a hundred years or whatever it may be to refine the corn and, and make get the cat, whatever it might be. But just going straight back to like layer zero, um, it, I think it, it, it's really good for changing the aperture and perspective of of, of where we've come as a species. How fortunate we are you come back with this renewed appreciation for running water and flat surfaces without sand and refrigeration and beds and uh i think it's quite grounding for us to remember you know what we are as you know as animals and um and yeah it just gives us a nice perspective and it is something like primal that lights up in us when we make our first friction fire, for sure like that (laughs) it truly is like tom hanks um (laughs) demonstrated it in cast away like fire it's something just within you that sets a light when you make your first ever fire like which is a massive technology unlock um and uh, and leads to like all these other paths that you can now go and achieve um and so yeah i think it just gives good perspective and it's it's kind of empowering to an extent as well i guess
0: you know a lot of the people that go on your trips they they say it's the hardest thing they've ever done in their life according to your website and that That is a recipe in some ways for transformative travel, right? Like even on a lesser level, I feel that is some of my most memorable trips or some of the, the, the lessons that still stick with me are from, you know, the times when you, you maybe were roughing it and maybe that that's not living on a, a desert island, you know, trying to survive, but you know, maybe really extreme budget travel or, you know, you just don't have a lot of resources and you have to be resourceful, right? I think that's one of the key things. It's, it's, you're learning the skills to be resourceful. And when you self-identify as a resourceful person, I think it does open up a lot of possibilities in life, right? Like confidence, you can you can figure things out. And yeah, so I'm just wondering about these transformative travel experiences. Y- you've seen them on the ground with uh, some of your clients. What has what what that meant to them? And, and I'm curious about some of your... I mean, we already talked about a couple of yours, but if there was another one maybe perhaps from your personal life that you wanted to share that maybe transformed the way you, you look at life. I mean, I've definitely
1: shared my, my big two crossroads, but to share some of my customers, like, again, we didn't set this up for transformational travel. It's just, the idea is, you know, to be in nature, learn cool skills and have a lot of fun. Um, and, um, but I think getting off that hamster wheel of life, looking around, People suddenly realise. I don't know. Maybe I've been working a job for the last fifteen years that doesn't fulfil me, that I'm not happy with, or I've, my partner's not doing it for me. They, you know, you never stopped and look around and got off, and, and the you know that that amps will. And we've had we've had people leave their partners, and we've had people leave their jobs. I've had people lose like thirty percent of their. Um, well, we've had obese people who are now um, marathon runners. We've had. Um, big big quite seismic changes and it's not I don't position it as a transformational travel experience and I don't really want to attract people who are maybe in the midst of a midlife crisis <laughs> too much but it, it does yeah it, it is beneficial for people partly through the adversity and partly just through slowing down I think and um and being in nature like that I should probably kind of share the format because I feel like that's you mentioned how hard it was and so we the whole point is that we we create an experience that is maybe more accessible. Most people maybe don't think to go and do survival and bushcraft, but then when it's paired up with being on a beautiful desert island, they think, ah, oh, I could do that. <laughs> I, and it kind of it does, in a way, make it more accessible because anytime it gets too much, you just jump into that turquoise ocean and you've got this reset and you're like, ah, oh, you know, everything is fine uh, if you're like a bit too hot or whatever. But the, the way we do it is that it's aimed at people that have never done anything like this before. And the first five days on the island are that kind of survival light where we're building up people's skill sets and their confidence. Um, And so they're sleeping in expedition hammocks with built-in mosquito nets. Um, We're cooking together as a tribe. We bring in food, you know, like we're making big pasta meals and Thai curries cooked in bamboo and... um, It's, you know, you're eating well and you're sleeping well and you're having some rum around the fire and playing games in the evening whilst you're learning all these cool skills. So, we you know, each day we're teaching them how to build shelter, how to, you know, weave palms and make natural cordage and ropes and stuff, how to make fire by friction, how to catch fish, how to identify wild edibles, how to turn seawater and freshwater, yada, yada, yada. But whilst you're doing that, whilst you're learning this stuff, we want you to be able to absorb it to not be just broken and exhausted. So for five days, it's kind of like a... You know we're a tribe and we're all mucking in and it's 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 my favorite part of the trip by far and people do say it's their favorite part of the trip, but after those five days that's when that's when shit gets real and we take away they don't have their hammocks anymore they basically just have uh, a machete a hand knife a sat phone a med kit a handful of fish hooks and if we're feeling kind a little bag of flour that they can make um, ash gates with on the on the fire. Um, and, and then they, they go to a new part of the island and they've got three days to survive, so they've got to get that fire by friction. You know, they don't even have a headlight, so they live by the moon, um, and they, you know, they go back to their circadian rhythm um, of waking up and at sunrise and going to bed just after sunset, and they've got to catch their fish. They're responsible for their own survival at that point. So those three days, kind of time extends, um, and it feels more like a week for them. Um, but that's that's when the learning happens. That's when they go in on themselves, and that's yeah, I guess that's where the, the hard work internally is done. Um, and then the speedboat arrives over the horizon, laden with cold beers and fruits, and you know, rescued, and we go back to the hotel that now feels like a ten star hotel, and we uh, go out and eat our waiting pizza. And uh, yeah, that's that's kind of the that's kind of the experience in a nutshell.
0: That must be one of the best beers you ever have. (laughs) Eight AM beers. It feels so right. (laughs) Are there some sort of policies for if if somebody really gets in trouble? What do you have? You had any incidents where like people can't make it on their own, and then you need to help them out, type of thing.
1: Yeah, so we've had a couple of um, evacuations for minor things, a fish hook through the finger and um, a machete through the finger, or through the tendon. Um, it was yours truly, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I was running the trip solo right at the beginning of the third ever trip for a group of Danish entrepreneurs. Um, and, yeah, so we obviously have an evacuation strategy, um, and all of our uh, instructors are uh, qualified in wilderness first aid um with knolls and so yeah we we go we go through that and we practice that but it it sounds extreme um but nice thing about islands is they're pretty easy to evacuate from it's not like being in the mountains or in the jungle um and generally the dangers aren't too severe machetes which are something you can pretty much keep control of and um and just you know slipping on rocks is probably my biggest concern
0: Mm. it's such a cool format that that you've created here and and that's what it is right i mean you you have to create the box within to have the experience right yeah
1: i think it's important to like i i don't want it to feel contrived in any way i i want it to feel like raw adventure and it is raw adventure but with that safe like that safety net is still there that framework is there but far enough away that it doesn't feel like it is too much there if that makes sense like don't want to. It has to remain adventurous. Injury has to be has to be possible. Um, adversity, you know, you're going to have adversity. You're going to have challenge. But if yeah. the shit really hits the fan, you know, we we've got you.
0: Mm. The digital detox aspect. Do you get any feedback from that?
1: People again, it's really nice how when you sit around the fire and talk and even like people who have never met. So normally it's ten strangers basically. Um, unless it's a private group trip, it's people that don't know each other, and it's amazing how within just like 24, 48 hours, people bond deep, people share a lot, and and I don't know if it's about that kind of low light or just the environment, but it really brings out the best in people. We're not and we're not looking at our phones. We're we're there. We're attentive, and we you know you really engage with people. I think that's really healthy. That's really nice, um, and yeah, when people get back off the island, they're really rather than like desperate to check their phone. So like I'm just gonna put it off for a few more hours. And really enjoying um that that disconnect from from the whole world. And it is and you know, nothing nothing necessarily okay, we had COVID happen once and so the world did change <laughs> and um, when people got off the island. But generally speaking, you know, we don't need to be so hyper connected and it is it's a fairly unnatural state for us. And it's um yeah, it feels it feels good not to be so connected.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about destinations, you've I mean, you traveled a lot and you have also found these islands with, with your unique qualifications, which may be no small feat considering how developed the world is. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, I'd love to share a little bit more about where you guys go. And then I just want to hear a bit more about destinations from your personal travels.
1: Yeah. So we, we've run up expeditions at the moment in Panama, the Philippines in Palawan and in Tonga in the South Pacific, not too far from Fiji. And um, and yeah, the, the criteria for like our, a desert island that works for us is it's finding this kind of Goldilocks zone of not too hot, not too cold with tourism. So it has to be close enough to tourism that we've got that infrastructure in place where you've got the hospital in case of an emergency, you've got the hotel that we start and finish from and the transport links that make it possible rather than going like um, yeah, deep into Sulawesi or something and it taking 70 hours of travel to get there. Um, so that has to be there, but it can't be too hot. It can't be too close to tourism that you've got, you know, lights on the horizon and tourists turning up and boats. And so it's really hard because that sphere of tourism is growing all the time. And I guess we're going to have our islands consumed. Like right now, the island in Panama is up for sale for $11 million. I'm thinking about crowdfunding 2,000 NFTs to all of us allowed to save that island if anyone's interested. Really? In
0: that.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think like I want to preserve these wildernesses and I feel like crowd. Yeah, crowdfunding to protect um, uh, wilderness would be yeah a, 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 an excellent way to go. But anyway, let's. I'll try and keep back on track. Um, the yeah, so it can't be. So there's there, potentially there's going to be a hotel built on that, and we'll lose that island. So we always have to be looking over the horizon for that next viable island, which is um, which is a challenge. And then it also has to be safe. You know, we can't have any pit vipers, and we can't have pirates, which is a problem in the south of the Philippines. It sounds like it's archaic but it is an issue and then um and then it has to be beautiful and then it has to not be infested by sandflies and mosquitoes and then it has to have all the resources that we need and it has to have um and it's really hard and I, I refuse to um have it make any concessions on that like perfect formula of islands so i need to get out there i've got a few target islands that we're looking at, at the moment um but uh yeah i guess it's half the fun it's hunting, hunting how do you yeah life.
0: do you just Mad research and then boots on the ground type of thing.
1: Yeah, I guess I, I kind of feel I, I'll give away my secrets a little bit, but uh, so we find them through, sometimes through TV shows. So they, if they yeah. the TV companies have done the due diligence for us, and we can right, find yeah, out that Survivor or Naked to... and Afraid, or Bear Grylls did it, so that's how we found the first island through Bear, Bear, Bear Grylls. Um, and then I do a lot of like scouring on Google Earth, and you'll even use you'll use clues like that island looks amazing, and then you can cross reference it with airports, and then you can look even at the wakes of boats because the satellite imagery will show the wakes where the boats were and you can get an idea for how populous it was and stuff like that and how busy that area is. So yeah, there's like, it's, it's, it's a pretty fun, I feel like a bomber. (laughs) (laughs) I like to geek out
0: on it, right? (laughs) Yeah, man.
1: I love getting lost in Google Earth. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: Yeah. So we're looking at a new, we're also thinking about, doing we're looking at northern indonesia and Myanmar at the moment as well but there's challenges with that and then we're thinking about doing a amazon island survival where we will spend five days kayaking downriver, spending time with different tribes and then survive on an island within the amazon which would be quite different but good for people that have already been on our trips before to do something completely completely
0: you got it sounds like you got a your plate pretty full with uh, all the things going on, <laughs> yeah, I
1: know that's why kind of the whole surviving, uh, saving the island piece um, is, is daunting because that's a whole rabbit hole to open if we if we're going kind to of try and buy this buy these islands.
0: <laughs> yeah, we'll be back in a moment. Would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee every day? I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press, but I tasted an Aeropress coffee many years ago, and immediately. I was sold. I had to get one. Aeropress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour-over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. Aeropress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years. I don't even remember how long it's been and they are under 50 bucks. So they also make an exceptional gift, thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, aeropres com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to aeropress for supporting today's show. on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me. Sign up over there at com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. Now let's get back to the show. What about personal destinations that you visited that you've really enjoyed?
1: Yeah, I feel like... I don't know how you, if you'd agree, but my perception of places changes with time. Like when you go somewhere when you're twenty, twenty-one, and you're wet behind the ears, and you've never experienced travel, it just intoxicates you and overcomes you. Um, so, like the first time I walked around Bangkok when I was nineteen, or when I first went to an island in the Philippines when I was twenty-one, I almost can't get those highs again. Like those, those will always be like my travel highlights, just because. You know, I've never opened Pandora's box. And so it's, I never, I don't think I'll ever get that, quite that same intense rush again. Um, I, you know, that I've still got so much beauty to see, so many different, I mean, I've still got, I'd like to stick off another 70 or so countries in my life. But um, but yeah, Southeast Asia really does it for me. Uh, I love, I do love Thailand. I love the default kind nature of, 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 of Thai people. Um, uh. Yeah, I, I'm definitely, I, I do adore the tropics. I think I'm happy to live in Lisbon and then go and scratch the itch of the tropics and then come back to the functionality of Lisbon. But I need, right. I need that tropical hit for sure.
0: So how has the nomad thing been? How long have you got? sounds like you're settling down now in, in, a, in a way, I guess I'm using air quotes, you're finding a place to live in one particular place, but you said you've been bumping around with your family. How, how has that experience been for you?
1: It's been cool. We were meant to we we're meant to move to Thailand. Like we we my wife left her job. We went to Thailand to go full time desert island survival and find islands all across Southeast Asia and then COVID hit. And so like then our plans dramatically changed. We didn't intend to be so nomadic. Um and then we've just kind of been hot stepping around. My, my son has probably had like 30 40 different bedrooms and he knows no different. For him it's just normal and he seems to like you know, kids are so adaptive and he thinks it's it's great, and he can't believe that we're about to stay in the same place. He's like, "But, but, but, when? What? what when are we not going <laughs> to? Why are we not going to move?" Um, and so, yeah, it's been cool. I think it's also a little exhausting. It's really hard to run a business and also be constantly planning the next month for the family. It's um, it's quite demanding mentally and, and, and on your resources as well. And with a kid, it's much easier without a child. But when you've got to get that piece of the puzzle of where will they. You know get some education get their education or at least like glorified um child minding um then that's that's tough and you have to build around that otherwise yeah. i think it was just the two of us we, you know just go anywhere beautiful with an airbnb
0: right what are uh some of the biggest lessons you've learned just from running the business you can say business lessons as a as a digital nomad or a location independent entrepreneur kind of on the move Gosh. but also doing all this stuff you're doing
1: um, I should really rehearse and have these answers prepared, but I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Like one of the things I I've, I've I've kind of got to the conclusion of, of 90% is good enough. Like I, I at the beginning I had so much control over like the the um how things were written and and the social media posts and, and stuff like that. And then I think it's so important to learn to relinquish that control because you if you try to control everything, you can't really scale. Um, And so I've got to that point of, you know, 90% is good enough, let's just do a bit more. Um, When that comes to the social media and the CRM, when it comes to the islands and and the actual experience, I will not make a concession. Um, But so I think, yeah, this last year, I had the most amazing um, uh, operations manager, if you will, uh, Layla, who's just, yeah, just allowed me to really be able to focus on the areas that I'm passionate about and outsource all the pieces that I'm not interested in that don't light me up. Kind of like education, you know, like I just can't be doing with any of the, the accounting aspects of it and um, the CRM automations and, and insurance pieces and stuff like that. Um, so outsource, outsourcing to where my strengths don't lie. Otherwise, you just, I find I have to work four or five X the amount of time to do those elements that don't come so naturally to me. So that's, yeah. that's been a big realization for me.
0: Yeah, that's that's huge. Kind of bringing on somebody like that that can take a lot off your plate, and that's always the one of the conundrums I think of the solopreneur, if you want to call it. When you're starting out, you're just kind of doing everything on your own. At what point do you yeah. kind of take the chance and and invest in somebody, and then you hope you find the right person? And yeah, there's a lot yeah. to it. Well, and
1: it is that realization that we're like, I'm one crank or one cog, and a business can only function by like having multiple cogs and you have, to, you can only do one revolution yourself, if that makes sense, but you need to have these multiple cogs out there to turn a bigger wheel. And you can't, you know, you just can't simply scale generally unless you, you do start to to find the right people and rely on other people.
0: Yeah. What is uh, the biggest lesson you've learned personally from just starting this and building it to where it's at now?
1: I uh, don't doubt yourself too much and go for it. But it's, I don't know, like, it's so, it's cliche. And then I also worry, like, you know, they say, follow your dreams. And like my friend, Sam, he's just packed up his job, spent 70,000 pounds to become a pilot only for COVID to hit and for him to not be able to become a pilot. And so, like, you hear, I, I, I almost want, think of myself as, like, you know, one of the people that won, won the lottery, but you don't hear of the 99 people that don't. So I, I'm reluctant to say, like, follow your dreams, it'll work out. But um and it also cliche like if you love what you do, you never work another day in your life. And it is true. Um, like if you if if you're just working things you're passionate on, it doesn't really matter if it's not making money initially. Um like I have friends who he, he takes people out fishing in Panama and now it's an Airbnb experience and suddenly it's taking up more and more of his time because just because he, you know, he does it because he loves it. So yeah, finding those things that really light you up and enjoy them and just putting extra time into it and seeing if it is something that can actually scale into. Into something, I think the internet has given us the opportunity for niches to thrive. From someone having their store on Etsy that can become really popular, to to someone doing like fishing trips in the Panamanian jungle and and actually make it into a business, we can you can always find those experts now um, and potentially build businesses on. If you're you know if you're in the top thousand people for a small niche, then you can build you can build a business on that.
0: Yeah. That's that's great advice. Thanks. Uh, I hear you on the, the sort of the follow your dreams thing. It's yeah. There's no guarantee of success, right? But I I think a good way to kind of think about it is okay. Well, if I do follow this dream or pursue this thing, well, I mean, it's going to lead to something, whether it's that thing or the next thing or whatever. And if you're sort of at peace with like, okay, well, I'm just going to go on this journey, and even if it doesn't work out, this is an experience I'm excited to have, and I'll trust that it's going to lead somewhere. Right, yeah, because that's a muscle in and of itself, I feel, like just just like giving yourself permission to to kind of start something and, and follow a dream in that way is mm-hmm. is another muscle that you build that uh allows you to kind of give you the confidence to just like keep doing that in life, hundred mm-hmm.
1: percent. And you said trust as well. It made me think of another thing, another aspect that I like to apply to business is just always starting from a position of trust with people, because business is, is often working and building partnerships with other people. And I, I just read human kindness, um, human which talks about human kindness, and just like, having that default position that generally most people are lovely, excellent people, and starting from a position of one hundred percent trust, only to have that trust eroded if you know if you are burnt. That you know, I, I think it just leaves all the doors open to opportunities. And I always you know, just go into positions, not with not, I, I, not being naive, but just you know believing in people and believing in opportunities working out. Not always looking at my shoulder, thinking, "Oh, this person's trying to steal this from me," or whatever it might be. But I, I don't know how much that applies to other other businesses. But I think, yeah, default trust in people is is a nice place to start from.
0: Humankind. That was a book recommendation then. Yeah, it's a
1: lovely book. If you enjoyed, say, like, Sapiens, um, it's a nice follow-on from that. It's by a Dutch guy called, quickly Googling it, Rutger Bregman. It's a lovely, lovely book. But it also it, it touches on, like, I'm fascinated about um, our pre-programming and how things change with the dawn of agriculture, and it looks a lot at that and the kind of the social structures that we had as tribes and and what was rewarded. Like generally like we've moved, um, we are now homo puppy. We've we've become more and more soft and kind and gentle because these were things that within the tribe were actually celebrated within leaders. You know, if you um if you were covetous and if you um this is before the dawn of agriculture where everything changed. But if you were um uh selfish or covetous and stuff, you know, your tribe turned on you and blew a hundred <laughs> poison darts into your back if you were if you're an arsehole. But if um, and so we've actually kind of Pre, we've our evolution has been to towards kindness and, and goodness. Uh, and it's only really the and we didn't have ownership of property until the dawn of agriculture when we you know we suddenly had food resources and we had to build power structures and armies and such. Um but uh yeah anyway, I'll go on a tangent, but it's it's a it's a lovely book and it if anyone has doesn't have a default belief in in humanity, then it, it really helps to uh to change that lens and think hmm. better of us.
0: Now, this is a kind of an interesting aspect of your work that I hadn't thought about because you are you know going through the the tribe lens, right? Which kind of extrapolating that out and looking where we're at as a society today, it, it you can't help but reflect on the institutions and and kind of how it's evolved, right? Because you are offering people an experience that's taking them back to their base primal needs and just the the way it was and and that's Those two worlds are dramatically different.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's magnificent what we've achieved, but I think no one really seems to remember that only 10,000 years ago, there was just five to 10 million of us. And that, that was, you know, we were just a large mammal that was hunter gathering uh, a, a set amount of resources, but only five to 10 million of us. And then, (laughs) <laughs> we've exploded to 8 billion and people always like on the island are like yeah where can I get carbohydrates and stuff like that like we've only got 15 or so species really that give us 80% of all of our food like carbohydrates like we've cultivated uh, grasses for, for 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 wheat and barley and such and potatoes and rice and sago palm in Africa and you know these things are rare in nature and everything that you see uh, in the supermarkets is a kind of a genetically enhanced version of what it originally was was in nature you know your bananas were full of seeds and your um, pineapples were smaller than your fist and and so yeah we just getting I don't know helping with that perspective of, of how far we've come and also you know like it used, used to be a walk on the back of the salmon across to France from England and it, hard to imagine what our planet was like 10,000 years ago from a resource perspective and now practicing primitive skills in this kind of new world like we were recently trying to use gorge hooks where you make a little hook out of bone um, and make and make the cordage out of hibiscus bark and it's so hard because you've probably got like a hundredth of the fish available to you that the ocean would have had back then when we could apply these skills. We still have people like Nellie Stingray with a spike and stuff. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's a vastly different world to when these primitive skills were, were the, you know, the, the, the peak of technology.
0: <laughs> yeah. Has this changed your diet, your personal diet, just being on these trips and.
1: I uh, should be better with that. and <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I haven't really,
1: no. Um, we, and we, we have a lot of people who are uh, very mindful of their diet and we, we cater for vegetarians and vegans and, and help to supplement their diet so they can, they can do these trips, but most become island pescatarian when they're, when they, when they join us. Yeah,
0: right. Any other books you recommend? Cause book recommendations are always nice. You mentioned the one.
1: Again, I wish I was better read. Like, as <laughs> um, so, so, I, Sapiens I are saying, obviously, but I imagine a lot of people recommend that. I really like uh, a lot of Bill Bryson. I think Bill Bryson Home is a really underrated book, um, where he I don't know if you've read it. He goes like from room to room and just talks about every item in there and takes goes on like a beautiful journey on the kind of the etymology of it. So like I don't know, not considering. The table, the table didn't used to have legs and it was a board and you'd get your board and lodging and stay somewhere and they'd give you a board with your food on. And to be trustworthy was to have your hands above board. And like it just goes down all these beautiful little rabbit holes about everything that you don't really consider, like why we have salt and pepper as the two primary kind of condiments that sit on our table. And yeah, you learn a lot and it's it's fun.
0: I'm a Bill Bryson fan and I, I the body was another one. And uh, yeah. he has the... The sure, book about, uh, everything. yes, which is yeah. incredible in his travel books and everything. So cool. But I haven't read that yeah. one. So I'll have to take a look at that.
1: And then like, I guess I should do a survival one. I'm trying to remember the exact name. It's like 432 days, but it's not, it's a sea survival story. of This Mexican fisherman who um, gets swept away off the coast of Mexico and it's the longest ever sea survival. And he survives or 432 days, more or less. So like year and a half, just out in a small little fiberglass mm-hmm. hull. Um, he uses a cool box for his shade. He catches birds by night and just hides in this cool box for a year and a half throughout the sun- sunny days, collects water bottles that he fills with with fresh water when it rains. It's just one of the most shockingly challenging endurances of, of survival. Um, and uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it and often reference it on the island.
0: Wow. Well, congratulations, man. We should mention the URL again. It's Desert Survival.com and we'll drop that in the show notes. Anything else you want to add, Tom? Um,
1: not really. Um, yeah, if you ever my oh yeah, my Twitter is Desert Island Tom. Um I'm, I'm also a crypto guy on there. I do like a crypto channel because I had to see myself through the uh through the COVID winter. So I've been involved in that. But it's it's kind of strange and I struggled with having those two worlds because it's so it's such a dichotomy from, from this purest pursuit of, of, of survival. But I kind of now like the yin and the yang. Um, I I can live with it. So, uh, yeah, if anyone's in Lisbon wants to, wants to get a coffee, uh, or a beer, let me know. I'm going to be here for a while now and, uh, always, always open to, to meet new people.
0: I'm just inspired by your story and that you were able to create this, this company that, yeah, feeds your passions and also gives people a chance to have such a unique experience in, in a world where this type of experience is hard. It's kind of hard to come by. I think that's why it's blowing up for you. So just congrats on all that. Hope we can stay in touch. And yeah, I'll take you up on that coffee slash beer Lisbon thing. Just appreciate your time today, man. Thanks so much for coming on and hope to stay in touch.
1: Oh, thank you, Jason. That's really, really kind of you. It's been, it's been lovely chatting with you and I look forward to meeting IRL in real life. Sounds okay. <laughs> Cheers. Take care, man.
0: Well, there you have it. I want to thank Tom for stopping by the show. Of course, DesertIslandSurvival.com is the website. And if you want to get back to your primal instincts, back to the basics, you can go on there and see what trips they have coming up. Looks like they're all full right now, but you can always hop on the email list. And speaking of that, if you haven't been on the Zero to travel.com email list and you want to keep in touch off the podcast, please take a moment to sign up and keep in touch. Would love to uh, have this be a two-way conversation. I'm always begging for listeners to get in touch because I love to hear from you and I love the community aspect of this podcast. It's what's kept me going for almost nine years now, which is insane. Now, Quickly, I teased out at the beginning this uh, this lesson I just read from a Grammy award-winning artist, Jack White. You might have heard of him from The White Stripes, and of course, he has his own solo stuff. I read an article with him in, in a magazine I subscribe to called American Songwriter, and I've heard this about him before, too. He's talked about this in other interviews. What he does often, I think all the times, part of his creative process, is he makes things harder on himself. <laughs> he actually tries to mess things up. So there is some kind of struggle. He does this famously with some of his guitars by uh, using guitars that are cheap and go out of tune really easy. Uh, a couple of the examples that he used in the article. One thing uh, he said when he was recording two albums in, in the same year with a couple bands, he used only one microphone, for these albums on every single instrument, which <laughs> really makes things difficult. And another example he used uh, if he was playing bass on a song, instead of getting, like, picking up the brand new bass in the studio that would be really easy for him to play, he would take this old fretless bass that didn't have any frets on it. So if, if you don't know what frets are, they're the, they're the lines on, on the guitar that kind of tell you where the notes are, they're a reference point for the notes. But if you don't have any frets, like you don't in a in a stand-up bass, for example, you have to just be able to play it by ear and know where the notes are. And he didn't have any experience playing a fretless bass, but he took that one anyway. So he does all these things to kind of screw things up. And I wanted to share a quote at the end where he says... I think not being satisfied is a good place to be. It's being very minimal on patting yourself on the back and stroking the ego and being more interested in going into new territory and being in a dangerous place. Being right on the edge of something that is not comfortable and trying to fight your way out of that box is a good spot to always remain in. You never win. You never conquer. You never actually get to the top of the mountain. End quote. And he fully admits that this is not something he's telling other artists to do. This is just him sharing his process. But for me, I really admire that. I really uh, love that somebody that's so established that could just be doing the easy thing is finding all of these ways to challenge himself. And it was just a reminder for me that I wanted to share with you. It just got me thinking and asking myself this question, hey, what could I do to challenge myself in my work or in my life today, what are some simple things I could do to make it harder? I mean, one thing I could do, I I just thought of this is try to record this whole podcast in one take. I'm oftentimes when I do these intro and outro pieces, well, I have to stop and start sometimes because I lose my train of thought or I make a point and I, I realize I could have made it better. So I have to stop and, and make the point again, or maybe I'm too long winded. Maybe I'm doing that right now. <laughs> and I want to cut things short. And I do that for, for you, the listener. I want to make each show the best show it possibly can be. But when you, you know, make hundreds of shows and you have varying opinions from listeners out there, it's not always going to hit in every way, every moment. And I get that. But how can I level up my craft in podcasting or... Songwriting, or whatever the things I'm doing personally with, with my own creative life and perhaps my own travel life. And I wanted to bring this up because I think it really ties in well with the conversation with Tom today. I mean, what is getting stranded on a desert island if not getting out of your comfort zone completely travel-wise? So how can we do that in our day-to-day lives? How can we get ourselves out of our own comfort zones and And push, and you know, like Jack said, really kind of being in this place where uh, we're not patting ourselves in the back too much, we're not stroking our egos, we're just getting into new territories, perhaps in these uh, what he said dangerous places, putting ourselves in these situations and just kind of seeing what happens, right and and kind of pushing through and it just got me thinking, how can I do this in in my own life, in my travel life, in the things I'm planning? I don't know. Just something to think about I wanted to share with you, and we all know that getting out of our comfort zone is good for us, but it doesn't mean we do it all the time, because it's hard, <laughs> right? Why do we want to make things harder on ourselves? It, it's it's annoying. It, it takes more time. It's uncomfortable. Yet, we know that getting uncomfortable is good for us. It's kind of like We know the salad's good for us, but we can't always eat the salad. Sometimes we want the mashed potatoes. I don't know. I didn't know I was going to talk about salads and mashed potatoes here at the end. But there you go. So anyway, some food for thought, maybe a little challenge for you, uh, maybe a prompt for you to get in touch and let me know your thoughts. Give me your ideas, too. Don't forget to to reach out because uh, I love to share them on the show. And as we get out of here, I am going to leave you with a quote from a very funny comedian, Stephen Wright. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his stuff. And he said, Someone asked me if I were stranded on a desert island, what book would I bring? How to build a boat. <laughs> Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Cheers.
1: This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality.